Hello and welcome to Reading McCarthy. Reading McCarthy is a podcast devoted to the consideration and discussion of the works of one of our greatest American writers, Cormac McCarthy. Each episode will call upon different well-known Cormacian readers, scholars, and other experts to help us explore different works and various essential aspects of McCarthy's writing. My name is Scott Yarbrough, and I'll be your host for these forays into the deep wilds, dark groves, back alleys, and badlands of Cormac McCarthy. This is the second part of our consideration of the middle novel of Cormac McCarthy's Border Trilogy, The Crossing, published in 1994. And I am pleased to welcome back the only scholar twins I know, the Brothers Elmore. Dr. Jonathan Elmore is Associate Professor of English at Savannah State University and a managing editor of Watching Review. He researches and teaches composition, environmental humanities, and Cormac McCarthy studies. He is the editor of fiction in Six Mass Extinction, Narrative in an Era of Loss, published by Lexington, and co-author of An Introduction to African and Afro-Diasporic Peoples and Influences in British Literature and Culture Before the Industrial Revolution. His scholarship has been published in the Cormac McCarthy Journal, Mississippi Quarterly, the British Fantasy Society Journal, Orbit, the Journal of Liberal Arts and Humanities, and the Criterion, among others. His twin brother, Dr. Rick Elmore, is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Appalachian State University and Senior Managing Editor of Book Reviews at Symposium. He researches and teaches in the areas of 20th century French philosophy, critical theory, animal philosophy, and Cormac McCarthy studies. He is a co-editor of The Biopolitics of Punishment, Derrida and Foucault, published by Northwestern University. His articles and essays have appeared in Politics and Policy, Simploque, I'm going to guess, or Simploque, uh, Symposium, Mississippi Quarterly, and the Cormac McCarthy Journal, among others. Gentlemen, thank you for coming on the podcast. What about the the dog, the family dog in The Crossing? That's an interesting character, isn't he? Certainly. Well, and then he, you know, there's also this way in which the dog at the end is the callback to even to the wolf to the beginning. So yeah. Also, you know, that the book began with and now it ends with. But even that, I think, is a fascinating moment where like, he runs it off and rejects this, this apparently half blind, crippled, arthritic, twisted up, brutalized animal. And it smells horribly is the main problem. Right, 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 right. right. Yeah. yeah. And then. And then, of course, we get the Trinity test, and he's awakened in the night by the false, the false light and the false sun, or whatever that light is. And then he calls the dog back, which turns out to be fruitless, of course, that he's gone. But and this is this moment of like, in Rick's talk on this a couple times, like McCarthy's so interested in not only how is reality understood and how it's how does one live in this this world? How do you live in this reality? And it's hard. And this is, I think, one thing that happens over and over again with Billy here, where like. He has these moments where, like, his best self, and he's able to do it, and then he, then he slips back, you know, and, he, and he's not able to. And that's where, you know, he runs off the dog, and he wants that moment. Of course, we, we end the book there. He's sitting on the road with his hat in his hands crying. I mean, that's how that's yeah. how. I mean, it's easy to hear, too, some resonance. Easy to hear. I think there's some resonance between that. We, we talked a lot about that scene and that the dog in particular because there's a lot of ways I think you could read it, but it's very hard not to see, you know, of course the wolf and the dog and the dog as a domesticated wolf. And that what you have in a certain way is a kind of purity, this, this wild wolf 
who he has this really spiritual and powerful connection with early. And now much time has passed and we get this animal that is twisted and beaten and, and, you know, just pathetic by every measure. And, and not only that he does, he chase it off, but the fervency with which he chases it off, right? Like it won't leave. And then he like chases it and throws rocks at it. And then he chases it down the road and throws the pipe at it. I mean, it's, it's over the top in terms of driving it off. And then I think that to John's point about this sort of like, there's a way in which it feels like Billy doesn't see that connection. And then in the morning, you know, having woken up to the Trinity test and then wants the dog back, there's this sort of notion that somewhere in the essence of the wolf is somewhere in the dog, to put it that way, and that connection gets made in some ways. And that this happens over and over to to Billy, though, where he ends up losing the thing and only retrospectively realizes, you know, maybe he could have gotten it or he could have done something different. And I I feel like that final scene and that the book ends that way, uh, it's hard not to hear in the dog and in the family dog, the relationship to the wolf. So all the dogs in the book in Mexico are are bad, right? They get angry. They even even in New Mexico, they the rancher's dogs come up and threaten the wolf and he's kicking them away till the rancher and his hand come out and pull the dogs off. And then of course they're thrown into the dog fighting pit with the wolf later in Mexico, but their family dog, of course, and it's Boyd's dog, he gets his throat cut, but he survives, but he's, he's a silent dog. He's not able to bark. He's not able to warn them. He just kind of chases after them. And that dog, when he has to leave Boyd, he loses the dog. And then the dog comes back later, but it, presumably the dog goes off with Boyd, right? After after his time, right. when he goes off with the girl and he loses it. So that idea of the mute dog, I'm just not sure whether that's a simple grotesquerie, which, as we know, McCarthy's fond of such things, you know, the the tree with, with dead babies, because it's not enough to have the dead babies. Let's put them on a tree, like very poorly chosen Christmas ornaments or something. It's a really weird thing to do, even if it's his, even if there's a historical basis for it. And I don't think there is, although I'd have to look at Sepik to know for sure. Then, of course, this dog at the end, not only reminds us of the wolf, it reminds us of the family dog, Boyd's dog as well. And I think that, I don't know, I almost get this, again, rhyme and ancient mariner thing, which really does go back to a lot of these notions, what you were saying about seeing nature and the, the the whole notion of God and humanity all kind of is this one interwoven thing and not isolated and separate. And yet again, instead of learning the lesson of the ancient mariner, as he does over the course of the long poem, Billy still has to keep relearning that lesson. And of course, we have the same kind of weird thing happen with the wild dog hunt, looking at cities of the plain, which after reading this, that has a jarring feeling to it, even if they Absolutely. are a true pest and a true danger, and you really have to be careful with them. Uh, it is interesting. John Grady pulls one out to save. Horrible. When he, the dog gets double roped and get, like literally ripped apart by, by the two horsemen. Yeah. Right before that. I mean, it's just absolutely brutal scene. And then, then there's this moment where he takes in the well, puppy's probably the wrong word for it. We'll call it a puppy. I, I think it is a puppy because they're, these are dogs that have gone feral. They're not wolves. Oh, so it's or... a young dog. I'm just not sure that, Puppy captures the essence of what that is. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, we have to dig it out of the den, right? So it's, right, it's right. pretty young. So the dog here, and just that whole sequence is very weird. And of course, Billy's relationship. Well, maybe it goes back to like shooting that hawk and then regretting it. He does it on that moment of just what the heck? I wonder if I can hit it. In the standard tradition of rural rednecky 
16 and 17 year olds the world over. I wonder if I can hit it. And he takes a shot at it, not knowing it's a sin to shoot a hawk, as Atticus Finch would tell him. And then there's something he regrets about it. He's, he surrenders his weapon. He gives him up later. And then, of course, we have his relationship with Nino, who's the the the, the boy, right? Isn't that what Nino would mean? The the child, the boy? Yeah. 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 And so Nino, for, of course, is an awesome horse. He's, he's tired and riding double at the time, still outrides everything, outruns everything. And they talk about his father's good horse. He's a great cutting horse. He's He's a good working horse. He's he's a symbol of, I guess, in all these ways of the the family, the heritage, the pioneer days that Billy, having lost it all, is trying to hold on to. And so to me, the only scene more pathetic and horrible than him running off that dog and then crying over it is when those bandits are so mad that he doesn't have anything but bones that they just angrily stab his horse out of pure meanness. Which yeah. is, of course, very much like Billy running off the dog or shooting that hawk. Worse, probably, but you know, in that same category. Yeah. But in that, in those great moments of hospitality, right? Where then the group comes on him and they show him how to get right. the horse. They, you know, they ask their horses for sale, and that's when, when Billy knew for sure the horse would live. Yeah. And then he tries to pay him, right? He, like he gets that bloodstained money out, and you know, they won't take it. I mean, this is just a kindness they're doing. Right. I think too, though, and this is like as a philosopher reading McCarthy, one of the things about McCarthy that is so good and so fascinating and keeps one coming back is I don't think there are any accidents in McCarthy's work. You know, he's so carefully writes over such a long period of time, his editing process, I mean, you know, it's just legendary in some ways, but... But it's that, that what that means is when you're like, you know, is there, what's the significance of the dog with a cutthroat that can't speak? And then you're like, maybe, you know, because sometimes writers, you're like, I don't know, maybe that maybe they just put it in for some reason. But there's always like you pull them always on the thread and it always yeah. feels like once you do that, something comes with it. There aren't any accidents. And I think that's what makes him so fun to read. But also, I think makes him fundamentally philosophical is that there's yeah. really a system underlying the, the every decision that he's making. In the case of the the heart, the hawk, the dog, and and the horse, you also have this. This is not the only scene where a hawk is killed, and then there's regret. Of course, in the orchard keeper, right, takes it in for the bounty, and then once right. it didn't realize what he what what the, what the stakes were, and didn't understand what was happening, and so there's also this. I do think there's an element where in in McCarthy's work, where violence is done to animals for no reason, for truly no reason. Those are moments that are often called out as significant for some yeah. reason to show us something and the stabbing of of the horse is one of those where i mean it really is for no reason just yeah it, i mean maybe it, i mean they're frustrated maybe but it's not you almost don't even get that much they just sort of do it well um, he's kind of he's kind of castigated by other bandits so like you why'd you hurt a good horse it's just stupid yeah, yeah. you almost wish they just shot him <laughs> but uh, and, and of course that's that's telling in itself that it bothers me so much they'd stab his horse, but if they'd killed that guy for doing it, it wouldn't bother me at all. So it's interesting. <laughs> and and so I and I don't know in the current political correctness term where we are on the term gypsy. I know sometimes it's frowned on. He does say they speak in Romani, so these are supposed to be people yes. from um either Italy, Spain, or the Basque region who came over and carried that culture with them into the new world. So Romani, perhaps we call them. Yeah, that. So they link us up to the earlier wandering caravan with the opera singer and all that. And they they link us up, of course. The, which airplane is it? Is it uh, Brian Gimson said it's the airplane from the passenger? Which 
technically it's not as a biplane and all that, <laughs> but it, it's an interesting idea that the thing you die for down in the depths and it's never what you think it is. It's you know the tell we're seeking where the uh, all those things are important. That when I think of course of the hawk you just mentioned, I what I was referencing earlier is, is Yates' poem, "The Second Coming," where you know the hawk, yeah. the falcon cannot hear it a falconer and and all that, and here he's even attacking as well. So that's that whole sequence with the the Romani coming through the the bandits and and you know it it almost seems to say that despite the arbitrary evil that the world does, there is good there as well but it's represented like you guys said by usually people in the down and out the small people everyone's looking down on in these moments of kindness and generosity not by big heroes on hilltops carrying two-handed swords or shotguns or whatever but by some you know the woman who takes him in and gives him food just because he looks like he's so hungry the guy who comes along after him saying you know gotta watch out there's bandits in these hills it's fascinating too the one who paid him and trying to catch up with him but he somehow can't seem to do it, although they're moving so much slower than he is. Yeah, it, exactly. That guy's pretty fascinating. One of the things I left out of our little outline, but I think is also really interesting, is that the United States has gone to war. He misses Pearl Harbor because he's been in Mexico. And after everything happens to Boyd, he tries to go enlist multiple times. And they turn him down because he's got a heart murmur. That he didn't know about. That he didn't know about. What do you guys make of all that? We, we spent a good bit of time on this when we were first going through this. Uh, shameless plug, we actually have an article on Crossing coming out in Mississippi Quarterly. It may have already come out. It's coming out very shortly. We spent a lot of time with this. And, and I think that, first of all... And, the, and I'm sorry, what did you say it's coming out in, John? It's an article we have on Mississippi Quarterly on the cross. Mississippi Quarterly, great. We need to, to not overlook the clear implications of, of his masculinity, of American masculinity, and the fact that the Great War, he can't go to right. because of a, a weak heart. Right. And I think, you know, for, I mean, for all the criticisms you can have of Billy, he's not what we would call sort of weak-hearted throughout the book. I mean, he shows courage, he shows bravery, he shows these, but then on the physical sort of way, he, he doesn't have he doesn't have the heart for war. Right. He doesn't uh, bully people. He doesn't take advantage of the poor. Or, you know, he never goes into a place and takes food. He always tries to pay. He's always respectful. He'll go pages without saying anything and let other people have their have their way. So, Well, I mean, I think McCarthy's so important with this, where, you know, on the one hand, he has... These great American cowboy figures. In fact, I mean, the first introduction of Johnny Grady Cole in cities is Johnny the Great American Cowboy. But he played for this. And so here, you know, in, in World War II, this is the empire of America. This is the moment that America rises as the superpower. This is the thing. And his, his protagonist here can't go. Right. I think, too, it's like there's an element of the kind of this great world event happens off camera. And it's it's in there. You know, it, it it's important for the story. But like it in terms of like this world defining event is going on. And besides a little bit of this sort of element of the trying to get drafted, you largely don't know. It comes back a little bit um, yeah. later on, some mentions of it. So there's also that element. And I mean, it's yeah, he doesn't have a heart for war, but also it's in that period where his, like his motivation to, to, to enlist is also a little bit hard to understand in the sense that he doesn't seem motivated by great patriotic fervor he doesn't, other than a kind of, this is maybe what men should do or something, but even right. that isn't always clearly articulated by him. And this is, again, this sort of sense that there's a, a bunch of moments in the book where if he, he he seems swept up in a certain kind of inertia yeah, uh, or taken in the flow of things. Um, I, 
I, yeah, and so I kind of I have two theories where it's concerned. I think there's the more obvious one and a little more complicated one. I think the obvious one is throughout the novel, Billy suffers some survivor's guilt. He mm-hmm. survives his parents, and it you could it, it would not be fair to do this to a 16 year old boy, but you could make the case that he probably makes himself that had he not been gone with the rifle and it, had he not gotten him in the habit of locking the dog up, all that kind of stuff, things would have been very different. Had there been yeah. another physically almost full-grown person there with the, with the rifle, or his father had the rifle. So he survived his parents. He survives Boyd. He survives the wolf. And I think there's a, a guilt uh, that he's not been the one that's been called to be sacrificed. He's not the one who's been called to lay his body down, such as we see the stranger talk about it in Dakota of Cities of the Plain. He's been the one who's been able to kind of watch and, and walk away afterward. And the other thing is, I think the one thing he's actually searching for in the last portion of this book, especially after he finds, before he finds Boyd's um, body and then afterward, and what he's looking for in the most telling parts of the next novel, is he's looking for family and brotherhood. And again and again, again, he's, he's the one who survives, but he ends up alone mostly again until that very you know, the very interesting ending at the very end of, of Cities of the Plain, where there is a home there for him, finally. Yeah. Right? Yeah. After what seems to be literally 70 years of wandering. And so, if nothing else, this collection of men all bound together in a purpose, and maybe one of the only wars in history where we can point to, there's pretty much a pretty clear-cut good guys versus bad guys scenario. Even if we're teaming up with some of the bad guys to go against the worse or bad guys. But you can't make that argument. Uh, I don't know. I guess you can probably make it civil war that one side's fighting against slavery and, and so on. So it's a pretty clear cut case there too. But most wars, it's much more who's in the right or wrong. You know, we, when we, we talk about World War One, and it's interesting to see movies made about World War One where they prematurely Nazified the Germans, right. and they make them. You know, there's a very fascist quality to World War One Germans, which really they didn't have. Not that it weren't fascist areas in Europe, but it wasn't particularly in charge of the the German policy bureaus at the time. And so I, I think maybe that's what's going on with him a little bit there, that in that notion to weak heart that he, well, you know, John Grady always cared for the ardent hearted, we're told mm-hmm. in the first book. And is where does Billy fall with that? He, you know, and with all the failures, is it, it's not, like you said, it's not his lack of heart, but it's maybe a lack of other people to respect the kind of heart he has, the, the heart of a questioner or a seeker instead of someone who solves it with grandpa's pistol. Yeah. And I think that gets you thinking about if he is, in fact, the image of the ardent hearted, then it's like the question of what actually ardent heartedness would be. I believe when the whole, when it's all said and done, taken as a trilogy, that Billy's the protagonist of the trilogy. And it, that when it's all said, if you look at it in terms of character development, character arcs, character growth, characters learning lessons and evolving and changing. And that's Billy. If you look at it in terms of who has the best on-screen moments and will get the big star to play him, that's definitely John Grady Cole. You know, he's he's Matt Damon and Billy's going to end up with someone who's like, you know, Henry Thomas playing Rollins, although Henry Thomas is an actual Texan, blows it away in that film version. Maybe it's the best one of the best ones in that film. But I think Billy is our our hero of the trilogy, despite our love for John Gray because of all the things we say. Absolutely. So book ends in a really strange way. It seems like it takes a left turn at Albuquerque because we are dealing with New Mexico. And we have here the Trinity test. 
right? And it's beautifully written that that sequence. Understated too. That's Understated. <laughs> He's just run off the dog, and then we hear literally the last page and a half of the novel. He woke in the white light of the desert noon and sat up in the rank-smelling blankets. The shadow of the bare wood window sash stenciled onto the opposite wall began to pale and fade as he watched, as if a cloud were passing over the sun. He kicked out of the blankets and pulled on his boots and his hat and rose and walked out. The road was a gray pale and the light and the light was drawing away along the edges of the world. And then we hear about the small birds are confused and moving and all that and how he sees everything. And he finally looks to the east where there was no sun. There was no dawn, and we looked again toward the north. The light was drawing away faster, and that noon in which he'd woke was now become an alien dusk and now an alien dark, and the birds that flew had lighted and all had hushed once again in the bracken by the road. Whatever early scholarship pinpoints the, the tests, they think it's Chip Arnold, but they definitely get extra credit. But what a weird way to end a book, right? Well, it is, but it's also, I think, very much in keeping with the philosophy of this book. You yeah. were talking about John Berger, John Brady, Billy's life. And near the end of the book, he runs into that writer and, and he has this like a firm moment of his own life. This is page 420. There ain't but one life worth living, and I was born to it. Uh, and the writer, a few lines later, says, the world will never be the same, the writer said. Did you know that? And Billy responds, I know it, it ain't now. Yeah. There's this moment, he embraces the sort of dynamism, just like, it's new every second. And this is the life that I was born to live. And I want I want to get to do it. I want to get to live it. And then you just read that beautiful passage, printed the test, and of course, lighting up the sky. But then how the book actually ends is... He sat there for a long time, and after a while, the east did gray, and after a while, the right and God-made sun did rise, once again for all and without distinction. So there's this beautiful way in which, on the one hand, this incredibly singular moment, the moment the, the nuclear bomb is exploded, yeah. is entirely singular and entirely distinctive, and yet every moment, though, is entirely singular and entirely distinctive. Uh. And this is another one in a chain. Yes, it's different. But they all are. And I, and especially now with the new novels where this has been folded back in, there's this way in which like, this is not a metaphor for McCarthy. This is not mind-gaming. He thinks this is physically, spiritually, whatever category you're putting, this is how reality is. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not an accident then that the first attempt at you know, human-powered fission is successful landmark event and then of course the sun rises overall so it, it's like you have literally the same kinds of processes going on so it's like it, and this is you know his interest in physics right like it, it's not to john's point it's it's literally at the level of yeah but we have something very similar happening all the time in a much grander way everywhere across the earth in the sense of its its exposure to the sun right. and that then i think that that brings us back around really nicely to this idea of what does it mean to live in a world that is new every day if you take that truly seriously that every moment is unique that it's flowing that 
and we'll never, you know, we, we can't go backwards. We can only go forwards. These sorts of like they're kind of cliches. And on one sense, it seems easy to say everything's an activity. You know, it's not stuff, it's process or something. But right. then I think McCarthy is actually trying to struggle with, okay, let's say that that's true in the most material sense. How do we live? How, how do you operate? What's reality like? Right. And that's the problem that I feel like, you know, the, the novel ends with without solving. Yeah. And the other the other problem that he puts forward that he also revisits, of course, so straightforwardly in The Passenger is we have seen all these back and forth moments of elemental human evil and human kindness. So the tale of the fascist who sucks out eyeballs, the guy who, uh, you know, cut the dog's throat and kill his parents. See these other people, you know, the guys who are shooting them with the rifle from such a great distance then the people who save them, pull them up in the truck and don't know anything. The, all the people who, who share these meals with him without knowing anything about him, other than the fact that he's poor, alone and hungry. So, we now have this capacity following very rapidly on the hills of those first tests to destroy life on earth as we know it. And we know what people have always done with the capacity to do harm, which is throughout history, we've used it. And we finally got something to such a point that once we use it, the tale is told. And it's that ongoing balance of can the good outweigh the evil and I think it goes all the way back to what you referenced much earlier, Rick, is every man's path is another's path. Everyone's tell is the same as the other's tell. And realizing that and the question asked in season of plane, will you will you stand for him, that man? Will that be enough to keep pushing back? I feel like there's almost an elemental cynicism and fear in the passenger that we don't see in these other books. Like you said, there is a a shadowed optimism and the others, even the road where the kindness of the boy and then the family that takes him in is, in again, in contrast with the destruction done, maybe the irreversible destruction done to the world. And this book in particular does seem to end on that same dour note of this this boy who's been so kind, just drove off that dog and then he regrets it. But a second after you launch the bomb, regret's not going to get it done. So that's the end of it. I think too, though, there's, and, and I, I agree with all of that, but there's also a way in which one thing beautiful about the ending is this momentous event happens and then just the, you know, the thing that happens every day happens Everything and it puts reverts. it into a context. The birds but, go but back to sleep all, and say, oh, well, alarm clock went off early. Yeah. And, but there's also a way in which like this speaks a little bit, I think, to McCarthy, a, a deep critique McCarthy has of, you know, do you read McCarthy as being sort of, you know, a critic of American exceptionalism, a sort of critic of the Western and so forth. And I, I mean, I do. But I think one of the things that he's always asking, too, is to put, you know, every great momentous event, every every seeming sort of radical shift is also kind of put in a context where, yeah, but but we've, you know, in a certain sense, like in McCarthy's fiction, you see this, worlds get destroyed all the time, right? Yeah. Like the, the process of colonization, et cetera, that like, in a certain sense, yeah, you're right, that now we have a power we've never had before. But then McCarthy adds this beautiful sort of note that's sort of like, or it's a power we've always had, and uh -huh. that's been used, and that then, and that troubling of you don't get a clean, you know, that's the event, and now everything's different moment, is what I think also his, his, his fiction so beautifully illustrates and also forces you to like, get to the end of the book, and you're like, what was that about? What's right. the lesson? And right. maybe the lesson is that you have to keep asking questions like what the lesson is. Yeah. That's, of course, what we love about McCarthy, right? You can always come back and and ask that question. So I think it's time for me to ask you guys the question I ask all my first-time guests on the podcast, which is, and this time I'll go in reverse order. I'll do Rick first and then. So who, which one? Okay, twins, but who's firstborn? 
Oh, I'm first born. How how big a a gap? Thirty seconds. Thirty seconds, and, yeah, and somehow C section, so she yanked us two out. And somehow, John, he's held onto his hair. I've always you been taller. You've always been taller. Okay, well there you go. So <laughs> there's a payoff in everything, right? Exactly. It's the man made son and the God made son. You know, S U N. By the way, don't don't think I'm choosing sides. So so Rick, what's your favorite Cormac McCarthy novel and why? Oh, that's a great question. I think my favorite Cormac McCarthy novel. Okay, I have, I have two answers. My favorite Cormac <laughs> McCarthy novel in terms of the novel I think is his best novel is Sutri. I think that book is unbelievable and the complexity of it and the beauty of it and the, the brokenness of the language. But like, it, there's nothing in his corpus that I think compares to Sutri on pure, just sort of like unbelievable technique. In terms of No Country for Old Men is one of my favorite books in terms of like, what's the one I'm going to pick up and reread over oh. and over? Because there are some lines in that book that just stick with you in a way that just, you know, Sheriff Bell is just, for all of his, one can critique certain elements of his masculinity for sure. But like the, some of the like just funny, insightful, witty lines of that book are so compelling. So I think it would be, I mean, I love them all, but those two would be my picks. And the reason I laughed is almost no one who's read deeply McCarthy is ever able to really land on just one period. It's always a little bit of a hedge and all that. Yeah. How about you, John? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm not going to hedge on my favorite. It definitely is no country for old men. Many of the reasons that Bruce said. Although what's interesting for me is I put, you know, the classic thing among Cormackings, right, is that there's this fight is such a bastard, Blood Meridian the Bastard. And Harold Bloom, of course, said it was Blood Meridian. And what, Blood Meridian's way lower on the list for me. Ah. And not that I don't love Blood Meridian, but that's where I sort of part with a lot of the, the faithful. Where I, ah. I don't mean four or five for me. That's uh, the, the new ones, which is hard to separate those two different books, are right up there, too. I don't really separate them as two different books. I, I will no. call them the Big Brother Little Sister book. but. I want. I really am dying for Diane Luce or someone else to get out there to uh, maybe Michael uh, Cruz to get out to the Whitliff connections and find out for me. At what point did those book did they become separate entities? Were they always, or is my suspicion correct that at one point the Stella Mars was kind of interwoven into larger passenger and then they decided to remove it? And I'd be interested how wrong I am or or how right I am. Certainly prepared to hear I'm wrong. Family life helps me learn that all the time. Uh, <laughs> and you know what's really interesting is when No Country for Old Men first came out, people who were diehard Cormackians were feeling a little let down because you'd had, and of course, in one way, things had changed because you'd had kind of bang, bang, bang. So 92, all the pretty horses, 94, the crossing, 96, cities of the plain. And then suddenly we wait nine years. And it's No Country for Old Men. And if you're thinking of The Crossing and No Country for Old Men, they're really aesthetically just doing different things. Yeah, this is absolutely. very much in the Sutri, Blood Meridian, complicated language, deep, kind of deeper sequences, a more overtly philosophical camp. And No Country for Old Men is a real sea change for what he had done before. And it does fit. It does work when you think of the road and when you think of the passenger, it, although the passenger seems to be a melange of different styles and different eras of his writing, not that it really feels completely uneven that way, but certainly in places it does. When, when you you know just sit stylistically, that feels Sutri era, that feels Border Trilogy era, that feels No Country era, and it just kind of depends where you are. And so it's really interesting, and I'm actually very appreciative of how much No Country for Old Men has really grown in people's estimation over the years. And the primary person I'll offer you for that is is Rick Wallach. 
who was not very happy with it when it first came out and now thinks of it as one of his very favorite McCarthy novels as well. Well, and we're seeing a similar thing with the new books, and there have definitely been people who have come out and disappointed. And I mean, you know, these are faithful readers of McCarthy, and they know right. what and it's going to be interesting to see how those those books age over the next decade in the field. It will be interesting. And and I do think there's also, of course, in scholarship, there's such wiggle room because we don't have to judge how good they are. We just have to judge how interesting they are and what do they have to say and how can we keep digging into them? And does it reward repeated visits? And they yeah. clearly do. Oh, yes. Oh, the, the aesthetic thing is really the job of the people who do newspaper reviews. I've just today finished editing the the podcast I did with the American literature editor for the London Times Literary Supplement. So he kind of gives perspective what it's like to to do a literary beat for a literary supplement to be the American lit guy and be the Cormac McCarthy guy at that paper. And I don't George Barrage, who wrote an exceptional review of the passenger when it came out. So I just finished editing it and people listening to the podcast will see the gap between when I'm able to get things edited and posted. And and when I actually we do the recording, and he just did some interesting perspectives. Just on the, there's a different view and kind of different notion of what it's about. And as I said early, when I was worried that because of how long we've been waiting for these books and all the things that rumor had told us, I was worried they would be so bad that we he'd be kind of run out of town on the rails of of criticism in the way that Hemingway was for Cross River and Into the Trees. So my first reaction was actually relief that the books were not like that. And I haven't automatically put them in in my top, the top four pantheon of books that rotate around being number one, but they're growing in my estimation as I reread them. And I have always thought they're interesting. And I've always thought there are parts of them I really like, and they're getting better and better the more I look at them. I, I just think he's one of those authors too, where I'm not sure I know how good they are because we have to spend so much time figuring out what they're doing still. Yeah. Like there's so many questions I have about that I just need to work on them more in a certain kind of way. And I mean, that's the fun of the the scholarly endeavor. But then I wonder if we're going to discover, because I think Selamaris is just, I, I enjoyed that book so much. And I do think of them as a pair, but yeah. that, that, that was just such an enjoyable read. And so I'm going to be, I, I'm, I think it also, we need the time to all think together about what they're about, then all decide together how good we think they actually yeah. are. <laughs> I and I suspect that's going to be a lightning rod divisive place <laughs> and for years to come. Well, you know, which is just which is just fine. I mean, that just shows the the richness of what he's done. But I haven't heard anything that makes me think there's any anything more to come other than maybe partial drafts and occasional writing and small things. But uh, and I'd love to be proven wrong on that front. But I I've not heard anything from anyone there would be more. But at least he's going out with a bang and not with a whimper. Uh, if, if these are the last thing he gives us and the last things he publishes. So, yeah. Well, if this is the end, if this is in fact the end, and we all hope it isn't, yeah, it, it's an end worthy of his career. Right. Then, one thing that's going to be interesting about Stella Mars, because it's so short and self contained and so great, it's going to get taught a lot more than other stuff. And so, yeah. how is that going to change where this becomes the thing that sort of end up in those American literature seminars and that, that people start sort of, and this is sort of happened with the road, right? They can just got taught and taught and taught. Uh, it, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how those two stack up as the one is taught way more than the other one's going to be. And it's it's weird because those anthologies and those classes can give you a kind of misaligned idea of who a writer is. So 90% of Henry James is like Daisy Miller and 10% of Henry James is like Turn of the Screw. But they don't yeah. put Portrait of the Lady or the Ambassadors in the Norton Anthology. They put Turn of the Screw in there because it's a cool 
ghost story or is it spoiler alert and <laughs> and of course you know everyone thinks oh that's what henry james is doing yeah he does do that over a handful of short stories in one famous novella but the other 10 million words he wrote was all like daisy miller and so it gives you the the false solution if the anthologies want to get it perfect they take book one of the crossing and use yeah. that and it, it will stand alone just fine and it's it's worthy it is certainly worthy yeah, absolutely well fellas i really appreciate you coming on the podcast thanks so Thank much you. for having us so my guests today have been jonathan elmore associate professor of english at savannah state university and the managing editor of washington review he is the editor of fiction and the six mass extinction narrative in an era of loss and co-author of an introduction to African and Afro-diasporic peoples and influences in British literature and culture before the Industrial Revolution. Scholarship's been published in Cormac McCarthy Journal, Mississippi Quarterly, British Fantasy Society Journal, Orbit, the Journal of Liberal Arts and Humanities, and Criterion, among others. And his twin brother, Rick Elmore, the Elder, is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Appalachian State University and Senior Managing Editor of Book Reviews at Symposium. He researches and teaches in the areas of 20th century French philosophy, critical theory, animal philosophy, and Cormac McCarthy studies. He's co-editor of the Biopolitics of Punishment, Derrida and Foucault. His articles and essays appeared in Politics and Policy, a symposium Mississippi Quarterly and the Cormac McCarthy Journal, among others. Thanks as well to Thomas Fry, composed, performed, produced some music for reading McCarthy. The views of the host and his guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their home institutions or the Cormac McCarthy Society. Although in our hearts, we hope that like Hank Williams, they will someday see the light. Download and follow us on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. If you're agreeable, it'll help us if you provide favorable reviews on these platforms. If you enjoy this podcast, you may also enjoy the Great American Novel Podcast, hosted by myself and Kirk Kernut. To contact me, please reach out to readingmccarthy at gmail.com. Despite the evening redness in the West, Reading McCarthy is also on Twitter. The website is at readingmccarthy.buzzsprout.com. And if you'd like to support the show, you can click on the little heart symbol at the top of the webpage to buy the show a cappuccino. You can support the podcast at www.patreon.com forward slash readingmccarthy. Thank you for listening.